The usual story about economics kind of goes like this. Economics truly began with the observations of Adam Smith. But I've talked about Ibn Khaldun's Mukaddima in the Islamic world and Catullius Astratata in India, and both discuss similar topics to Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, free trade, taxes, the division of labor, and specialization. In this episode, I'll be talking about Richard Cantillon and his 17th century treatise, Essay on the Nature of Trade in General, a hidden gem of economic writing that has only recently been brought to the attention of scholars of economics and history. The French-Irish economist Richard Cantillon was the first person to discuss the role of the entrepreneur, an invaluable ingredient in any capitalist system. Though Cantillon today should be a household name in the field of economics, there is a very good reason people know very little about Cantillon. Of Cantillon's documentation and letters, very, very little has survived. Whether it was by design to cover up his dealings or simply due to the ravages of time is up for debate. However, thanks to increasingly scholarly interest in Cantillon, biographers such as Antoine Murphy have crafted a much clearer picture of Cantillon's life. But in the end, he will always remain an elusive figure. He was born sometime between 1680 and 1690 in County Kerry, in Ireland of all places. Through the Cantillon family genealogy, we kind of get an idea of how the Cantillons made their way from France to Kerry, because if you couldn't tell, the name Cantillon definitely is an Irish. In the 11th century, the Cantillon family followed William the Conqueror in a successful invasion of Britain. A century later, the Cantillons under the reign of Henry II took part in the invasion of Ireland, or granted large tracts of land in southern Ireland in the province of Munster. Being gentlemanly Catholic farmers aligned to the crown, when the English Civil War broke out in the 17th century, the Cantillons joined the Stuart cause the eventual losers of the conflict. Being former enemies of the parliamentarian cause, 1,500 acres of the Cantillon lands were confiscated by the new government. As stated, Cantillon was born sometime between 1680 and 1690. His father, also named Richard Cantillon, married his wife Bridget and had three children, Thomas, Bernard, and the future economist, Richard. Cantillon's older brother had fought as a captain in the Jacobite cause against Parliament. And after the conflict had ended, Thomas made a living by leasing his lands for rent. With Thomas running his family's land, Richard and Bernard both saw few opportunities in Ireland and left for France. At the time, Ireland was deemed by many European commentators to be an economically dire backwater. Commentators explained the dismal state of the Irish economy as part of the Irish national character as lazy and slothful people. But the reality is that British laws and regulations completely stifled any economic opportunities for the people of Ireland. The repressive nature of British laws killed off any entrepreneurial drive that the Irish population could muster. Where Cantillon is from, in Kerry, is located in the southwest of Ireland. It is at the very, very edge of Europe. However, thanks to a lack of strong British governance in Ireland, it was actually a hotbed for smuggling. The defeat of the Jacobite cause in the Battle of the Boyne in 1690 brought about the death of the Catholic landholding class in Ireland. Former Jacobites fled Ireland in what historians have dubbed the Flight of the Wild Geese. Romantic versions of the wild geese tell tales of soldiers roaming across the European continent fighting for the Catholic cause. But soldiers weren't the only people who crossed borders. A professional class of commercially minded Irish also fled to France and established themselves as entrepreneurs and bankers. To take a simple example, by the 18th century, a fifth of the members of the Bordeaux Chamber of Commerce were Irishmen, a testament to their financial expertise. We have no idea exactly when Cantillon left Ireland for Paris, but we know he successfully applied for French nationality in 1708. When Cantillon arrived in France, he was by no means a rich man. One later commentator even said that before coming to Paris, Cantillon could rarely be found wearing shoes. Not a literal accusation, but an allusion to his Irish poverty. This was something Cantillon was keen to rectify by making a fortune, 
Though he lacked the money, he had a wealth of important banking and trading contacts through his family. Cantillon's cousin, also named Richard, but Richard Chevalier, had begun as a merchant, but his success allowed him to diversify into banking, a rare field of economic activity mostly unburdened by regulations in 18th century France. Cantillon's wealthy cousin housed him and provided him with work at his bank. Cantillon's cousin was asked to provide funds for British prisoners of war, an opportunity he passed on, but gave on to his younger cousin Cantillon. Thanks to his diligence, Cantillon's abilities were brought to the attention of an Englishman named James Bridges, the paymaster general of British forces abroad. By 1711, Cantillon moved to the Iberian Peninsula during the Spanish War of Succession. Cantillon was appointed as the acting paymaster in Spain. His duties included providing troops wages, food, equipment, and any other necessities that arose. Cantillon quickly distinguished himself, and within a few months and a bit of experience under his belt, he became a trusted advisor to Bridges, who increasingly relied on Cantillon's knowledge. Now, in 18th century Britain, a certain amount of overt corruption and graft was expected and even accepted in public office. But Bridges took it to another level, using his position to become the wealthiest war profiteer of the era. While working under Bridges, Cantillon learned how money moved across countries and became a young expert on transferring wealth across borders. Bridges, who was actually quite fond of Cantillon, offered him a job in London as work in Spain had died down. But Cantillon refused this offer. Instead, he planned to return to Paris and establish himself as a banker. While working for his cousin back in Paris, Cantillon was introduced to Henry Bolingbroke, an Englishman of Jacobite sympathies who had recently fled. Cantillon offered his services and the two became firm friends, with Bolingbroke introducing Cantillon to leading intellectuals of France, including Voltaire and Montesquieu, who he became actually very good friends with later on. Cantillon spent much of his life interacting with the literati and intellectual circles of his day, conversing with people like Isaac Newton and John Law. Cantillon returned to Paris at a tough time for a budding entrepreneur. Louis XIV's unprecedented government spending had bankrupted the French state. By 1715, Cantillon was busy using his accounting skills to delay the collapse of his cousin's bank. However, his cousin gave up eventually and signed over the bank to Cantillon, who quickly established himself as a skillful banker specialising in the transfer of money between Paris and London. Around this time, Cantillon met Matthew Deckard, a director of the East India Company, who agreed to extend him credit to expand his banking operations even further. And thanks to this, Cantillon experienced a degree of prosperity and fortune through his banking activities. He was an avid drinker and dealer of wine, a hobby he pursued throughout his life, though sometimes with a little too much enthusiasm being an Irishman. Cantillon was fond of reading in his spare time, with one friend commenting that he used to read about three hours a day in bed. He was well off, but he would become one of the wealthiest private individuals in Europe through his association with the Scotsman John Law. In 1716, the Scotsman John Law was appointed as the Controller General of Finances of France. He created the General Private Bank, one of the first institutions to develop paper money. King Louis had racked up a substantial national debt, but he had no intention of cutting his spending. Instead, he looked for a way to manage the national debt, and for this he turned to John Law. Through the General Private Bank, Law was granted a monopoly over the right to expand French territories in North America. This agreement was called the Mississippi Company by the French government. To return the favour for the monopoly privileges, the Mississippi Company, under Law's leadership, financed the French government debt at a low rate of interest. John Law was a follower of the economist William Potter, who in 1650 wrote The Key of Wealth, which solidified in Law's mind the idea that increases in the money supply would increase employment and productivity. This is kind of an early modern forerunner of John Maynard Keynes's ideas. Law, assured of his theory, sold Mississippi Company shares using the General Private Bank's monopoly in issuing banknotes to finance his investors. 
In the fall of 1718, Law hired Cantillon. But Cantillon did not have much faith in the Mississippi Company. It was a scam, and it was simply a way to transfer national debt onto company shares using manipulation in the market. Cantillon also disagreed with Law's views of monetary policy that increases the money supply would have a positive effect on employment and productivity. With the Mississippi Company shares being too good to pass up on, market mania eventually set in, and there was a buying frenzy of shares. Everything was going well until the French government eventually admitted that the number of paper notes being issued exceeded the metal coinage it held. As people began to rapidly sell their shares, the money supply of France effectively doubled overnight. Inflation began to increase, just as Cantillon had predicted before. The bubble eventually burst and fortunes were lost. Some historians even argue that the Mississippi bubble set the stage for the later French Revolution. But Cantillon, with his insider knowledge, had shorted his shares early, well before the peak, and had made out like a bandit, becoming one of France's wealthiest private individuals. Because of this, the relationship between Cantillon and Law soured, with Law eventually threatening Cantillon with arrest. In 1719, Cantillon left for Amsterdam before returned to Paris in 1720. During the mania over Mississippi Company shares, many had come to Cantillon for loans to finance buying more shares, shares which are now effectively worthless. Cantillon had become extremely wealthy by collecting high rates of interest on people's debt from economic catastrophe, one which he profited greatly from. This made him quite unpopular. Cantillon's debtors blamed him for their ruin, and from this point onwards, Cantillon was involved in a large number of court cases. But at this time, things weren't all bad for Cantillon. In 1722, he married an Irish woman, Mary Mahoney, the daughter of a wealthy merchant, former general. Cantillon spent much of the remainder of the 1720s traveling throughout Europe with his wife on business, probably doing his best to avoid numerous enemies in court cases in France. From 1729 onwards, Cantillon lived permanently in London, but made frequent sojourns to Paris for business. Retired and wealthy, Cantillon spent much of his life in the 1730s researching economics, writing treatises, sadly, only one of which survives. It is entitled, The Essay on Nature of Trade in General. Cantillon, though revolutionary and well ahead of his contemporaries in terms of economic knowledge, was still tied to certain dogmas of his day. For example, he had very little say about the possibility of economic growth and privileged the landed elite in his economic analysis. Nonetheless though, Cantillon distanced himself with pervasive mercantilist views of his day and strove to move away from normative arguments towards a scientific explanation of economic forces. Inspired by the methods of Descartes and Newton, Cantillon writes about economics by using simple abstract models and thought experiments to think about economic problems. Nowadays, this approach is widespread in economics, but at the time, Cantillon was the first to build upon abstract models. Cantillon's essay is divided into three books. The first is an analysis of an isolated state. In this pre-capitalist state, a king rules over landlords of cities, towns, and villages. Landlords correct rents from farmers who in turn work the fields. We can call this the centralized estate model. Cantillon dispassionately admits that most estates of this sort were won by force, similar to his own family who gained lands in England and Ireland through military conquest. But unlike most of his moralistic 18th century contemporaries, Cantillon gives descriptive assessments without injecting his moral views. Frederick Hayek commented that this tendency of Cantillon was especially remarkable for a writer of his time. In the second book, Cantillon undertakes his analysis of the monetary economy. Here, Cantillon criticized the mercantilists who believed that money was wealth, and so that the best policy for a nation is to hoard as much gold and silver as possible. But, as Cantillon points out, wealth isn't money, but the ability to consume. In the third and final part of his essay, Cantillon discussed the issues of foreign trade, exchange rates, and banking. 
Cantillon also extensively critiqued the Mississippi Company and the British variant of it, the South Sea Company, which ended in a similar catastrophe, which actually inspired the writing of Cato's letters. Some have theorized that Cantillon wrapped up numerous legal disputes over interest rates, actually wrote his essay as a defensive usury and a justification of his profession of banking. But Cantillon deals with much more than just banking in this essay. Before Adam Smith, the usually credited father of economics, even lifted a pen, Cantillon had begun carving out the discipline of economics. There is a lot to digest in Cantillon's essay, and I really can't cover everything. But I think Cantillon deserves praise for three significant innovations. His description of the role of entrepreneurs in the economy, his discussion of spatial economics, and his methodological contributions to economics as a field. In the 16th and 17th centuries, Europeans used the word entrepreneur to describe someone risky and at times even violent. It was not a word exactly dripping with glory or prestige. In the first part of his essay, Cantillon discusses the centralized estate economy, where a king rules cities, towns and villages, and landlords collect the rent and so on. In this economy, there is only three roles, landlords, overseers and workers. The landlord in the system is the sole decision maker who communicates his demands to overseers, who then bring this message to workers. But Cantillon believed that the replacement of barter with money allowed for a new class, the entrepreneur. In Cantillon's model of a market economy, the landlord still has a prominent role to play as they have a mass amount of wealth control. But now, landlords no longer dictatorially command the economy. Instead, they express their desires for goods and services, and entrepreneurs identify these demands and attempt to meet them. Cantillon defined an entrepreneur as someone who buys at a known price and sells at an uncertain price. Unlike Adam Smith's invisible hand, which acts kind of quasi-mythically, Cantillon's entrepreneur is the highly visible hand of the economy that serves as the catalyst of production. Observing the role of supply and demand in determining prices, Cantillon viewed the entrepreneur as an essential member of the market economy, one who brings prices and production in line with demand. Secondly, Cantillon was arguably the first person to discuss spatial economics, the study of the relationship between economic activity and geographical distribution. Cantillon theorized how economics determined the geography of the state. A state's capital city where the seat of government resides acts as a center for the economy. Moving outward, cities act as regional centers with large populations and markets. Cities in turn are surrounded by market towns where the produce of villages are bought and sold. Cantillon examined how distances affected prices and explained how prices vary because of this. Though this might sound very, very obvious today, Cantillon was actually the first person we know of who applied the first principles of spatial economics. Thirdly and lastly, we have Cantillon's contributions to economic methodology. Cantillon aimed to provide a scientific explanation of how the economy functioned. He was fundamentally concerned with establishing the cause and effect of the economy. Unlike his mercantilist contemporaries who tend to kind of blather on for great lengths about tangential topics in their treatises, Cantillon kept his mouth shut. He distinguishes himself by limiting himself to discussing descriptive, not normative matters. Cantillon's method of using abstract models to theorize about the economy has today become a pillar of the discipline. Economists Joseph Schumpeter and Frederick Hayek have praised Cantillon for his logical deductive reasoning, in spite of being one of the first in the Western world to write a fully systematic treatise in economics without any really previous examples to rely upon. So I think that's pretty impressive. Due to France's strict laws and censorship, though, Cantillon's essay was not published until 1755, 20 years after his death. But this is not to say the essay had no impact on economic thinking. His essay was circulated privately in Parisian intellectual circles, 
Though largely forgotten until recent scholarship, Cantillon did influence foundational thinkers in the history of economics. His writings were admired and studied by some of the earliest schools of economics, the physiocrats, with figures such as Francois Cuisinet and Marquise de Mirabeau. He's even one of the few writers Adam Smith mentions by name, quite the honor and prestige. Most of Cantillon's papers and books do not survive today. This is in part because in 1734, his London home was burned to the ground and Cantillon died in the flames. Throughout his life, Cantillon had made many enemies. He's such an enigma historically because he took great pains to cover his tracks and keep a low profile. Some historians theorize that Cantillon was murdered, while others might say that he could have faked his own death to escape disgruntled debtors, some of whom had already made debts upon his life before. Regardless, the truth is lost to time. Though Cantillon's works were eventually published and translated to English, by the close of the 18th century, Cantillon became an obscure name. However, in the 1860s, William Stanley Jevons, one of the founders of the Marginalist Revolution, rediscovered Cantillon's writings and called his essay The First Treatise in Economics. He even said it was more emphatically than any single other work the cradle of political economy. Fellow economist Joseph Schumpter, similarly to Jevons, credited Cantillon as an early pioneer of economics, a sentiment also shared by Austrian economists Friedrich Hayek and Murray Rothbard. Increasingly, historians of economic thought are realizing that many came before Adam Smith, the supposed father of economics, people such as Richard Cantillon. It is a great tragedy that the majority of Cantillon's economic writings are lost to time, but we're also lucky to still have his essay on the nature of trade in general, a book that, while forgotten today, arguably did more to establish economics as a discipline than any other. Thanks, Mo, for listening. Portraits of Liberty is produced by Landry Aries and written by me, Paul Meany. If you like the show, make sure to review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to see more content like this, check out the website libertarism.org.